Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome as well to our guests and visitors who are joining us. Looking forward as well to having communion where people can come forward to receive the elements afterward as well. That's a wonderful way of uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. We'll see how this morning's text, I think, intersects with the celebration of the Lord's Table. Before we uh, hear the word read, uh, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our time of confession, receiving the news that our sins are forgiven, pondering the awesome nature of your grace, preparing us to celebrate the Supper of our Lord. These are designed, Father, to increase our sense of awe and wonder. First, at the depravity and the depth of our alienation from you. And then, Father, to the to even greater depths to which your Son descended in order to lift us up. As we have sung, that he descended and then was lifted up uh, on a cross, that we might with him by faith be raised from death to life. And at a point in the future, Father, to be fully raised and united with our Savior at his glorious return. These are designed to instill in us a sense of hope, a firm confidence and assurance that our faith is not in vain, that our faith is well-founded and well-grounded in a God who is and who rewards those who seek Him in faith, a faith that is gifted to us through the work of Your Spirit, through the hearing of Your Word. We gather, Lord God, on a day like this, to set apart time to be your people in a collected sense. And we come, Father, to be fed, to receive, that we might then leave this place and share what we have received. And so we pray, Lord, that with open hearts we would receive your word and with quickened, able minds and bodies share what we have received from you, that we would indeed not merely just love you, but we would also love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would bestow upon them the same grace, mercy, and loving kindness that you bestow and lavish upon us daily. Many times, O oh Lord God, without our even being aware of it, we experience your grace and so as we come to worship you and later on to receive the bread and the cup, remind us, O oh Lord God, these are evidences and signs of your grace that point to something that is greater and more durable and enduring than anything this earth can offer us. That is the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. These things, O oh Lord God, unite us and bind us and commission us to do what you have commanded us. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come now to your word, we would hear and receive, be blessed, that we might go out and bless others. So speak to us now, Lord, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8 are really meant to be read together as a, a complete unit because they complement one another. If you want to look at it this way, that Zechariah 7, as we'll see, sort of presents a negative uh, view in terms of calling us to repentance, and then chapter 8 
uh, outlines what are the blessings that follow repentance. And so as the, the prophet speaks, remember how uh, Zechariah 7 ends with uh, Israel uh, being scattered and so forth. Uh, Zechariah 8 begins, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hearts be strong. Let your hands be strong. You in uh, these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be rebuilt. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from <clears throat> for him uh, who went out <clears throat> or came in. For I said, every man against his neighbor." But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah... Seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, 
let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. When uh, Jill and I uh, decluttered our basement before moving here to New Jersey, I discovered a board game that we had not played for years. Uh, it's a strategy game, and the image will go up on the screen here. Uh, it's a strategy game called Othello. You may have played this game. Uh, the object of the game is simple. You see there you've got white tiles and, and uh, dark tiles. And so the object of the game is to, is to basically if you have a, a white tile, you are to trap a dark tile between your two white tiles and you flip them to your color, and that's how you win the game. Well, Jill and I played this game a lot while we were dating, and she beat me every time. <laughs> every time, Jill was down to her last disc. I was about to win. She would survey the board and miraculously discover some move, and voila! She turned an entire column to her color, and in a dramatic reversal of fortune, she would seize victory from the jaws of defeat. There is a similar dramatic reversal of fortune that takes place when we move from Zechariah 7 to Zechariah 8. Remember, Zechariah 7 ends with the Lord explaining why he scattered Israel among the nations. The chapter begins with a question that is asked by men sent from Bethel. Should we continue to fast as we have been in the fifth month for these 70 years? And instead, what they hear from Zechariah, or the Lord through Zechariah, is a rehearsal of the history of Israel's failings. And so chapter 7 ends with this very sad commentary on Israel's, uh, their forefathers' uh, continued disobedience, that they were rebellious and he scattered them among the nations. Their land was left desolate because there was no one there to till the soil or keep up the buildings. The buildings had been sacked as well by Babylon and Persia. So chapter 8 begins, however, with this glimmer of hope. There is still one disc to be played. And when that disc is played, there will be a dramatic reversal of fortune. And that disc is played the moment the prophet opens his mouth and says, and the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, and then the rest of the chapter follows. So Zechariah 7 describes how God punished Israel for breaking his rules. Zechariah 8 now provides several encouraging incentives for keeping them. What are going to be the fruits what are going to be the benefits of Israel's repentance? So the, the, if you want to look at the big idea for this chapter, we're going to basically work on this premise, that God promises to bless those who play by his rules. That's a very consistent theme throughout the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. God promises to bless those who play by his rules. He promises to bless those who follow his instructions. He promises to bless those who obey his commands. This has been the, the historical standard, if you will, throughout God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy and read Deuteronomy 28. It's very clearly delineated there in the first part of, actually the first third of Deuteronomy 28. God lists all of the blessings. And then in the second third, the two-thirds of 28 are devoted to what will happen to Israel if they don't keep his rules. 
And so with a big idea that God promises to bless those who keep his rules, we're going to basically see the flow of chapter 8 as follows. We're going to answer these questions. Why does God promise to bless those who play by his rules? How will God keep his promise to bless those who play by his rules? And what will happen as a result of God keeping his promise to bless those who play by his rules? So why does God promise to bless those who play by his rules? How will he keep his promise to bless those who play by his rules? And what will happen as a result of God keeping his promise to bless those who play by his rules? So the first question, why does God promise to bless those who play by his rules? The answer is, God promises to bless those who play by his rules because, as he says in verse 2 of chapter 8, he is a jealous God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Now, Zion is another name for Israel, for God's chosen people. This word jealous creates a, a sense of anxiety, I think, in us. So maybe a question of uncertainty. But remember, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus 34, the Lord is speaking to Moses. And he tells Moses that when Israel enters into the promised land and they begin to conquer the nations that God will drive out before them, that when God has driven out these nations before Israel as they move into the promised land, Moses is to make sure the people are to do two things. First, they are not to make a covenant with any of these peoples. And then secondly, they must go and tear down all their altars and cut down all their idols. And God gives Moses the reason for this by saying, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now when the Lord uses uh, and says his name is Jealous and he uses that word jealousy, he doesn't use it and doesn't mean it in a way that we tend to use it or define it. We get jealous because we're sinful. We get jealous because we see someone who has something we want and we don't think they should have, and we covet it. We envy them. And our motive is driven by a sense of selfishness and entitlement. When God uses the word jealous, he is using it to describe his covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love for his people. Remember, when God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, he betrothed himself to Israel as a husband. He took for himself a bride from the people of Israel. And he expected in that moment for Israel to be faithful for him, to him. Remember, he did everything for Israel. He rescued them. He provided for them. He made sure that they plundered the Egyptians so that they had all that they needed as they went on their journey into the wilderness. So God's jealousy... Uh, does not arise from any, dis any sinful desire to possess or control or dominate his people. It arises essentially out of God's having lavished his grace upon his people. And then in response to that lavishing grace, we are to be faithful to him. And Israel was expected to be faithful to God. She was not. And so when we think of God's jealousy, think of it as the expression of his passion for his glory which he wants to shine through his people. God is jealous for his people because he wants them, he wants us to flourish. 
so that as we flourish, we can then reflect and shine outward the glory that we have received, the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness. Another reason why God is jealous for Israel here is because they are His chosen people. They are His bride. They don't belong to the nations that held them captive. They don't belong to the Babylonians. They don't belong to the Persians. And later on, they don't even belong to the Romans. God's people belong to Him. And so His jealousy is aroused when He sees His covenant faithfulness being violated, not only by those who ought to maintain that faithfulness, but by those who are outside the covenant as well. God is jealous for His people because to them He has given His commandments, to them He has given His great and precious promises. So when God says He is jealous for Zion, He is telling them that my concern and my love for you is so deep and so great that I have to act in a way that flows out of that love, that passion and concern because as you experience that love and grace, you will then reflect it to others. So why does God promise to bless those who play by His rules? Because He is jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. He wants us to be in relationship with Him. That's the whole purpose for Christ's coming. It's the whole purpose for God dealing with us. So how will God keep this promise? How will He keep this promise to bless those who will play by His rules, to keep His commandments, follow His instructions? Well, He says that He'll do it in two, two ways. Number one, he will return to Jerusalem. He says this in, uh, uh, in the text. And then he will dwell among his people. We know that God has returned to Israel from the text because Israel is back in the promised land. God has kept the promise that he made to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Remember when Israel was conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity... Uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, God spoke this promise in 29.11 of Jeremiah, that when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. So they know God has returned to them because they have returned to the land. And again, that's an aspect of his grace. He kept his promise. Regardless of the spiritual condition of the nation, they are back in the land that God had set aside for them. And then the second thing, God says that he will dwell among them. This is an intriguing promise, because this promise has both an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. If you want to be technical about it, this promise has that already and not yet tension. Remember, the people have been commissioned and they have begun to rebuild the temple. The temple represents the very presence of God in the midst of Israel. So in the immediate sense, the temple being rebuilt will remind people that God is now present with them. But when you move into chapter 9, you see something, and we'll see this next week as we move into Palm Sunday, we move into, into chapter 9 of Zechariah, particularly I think it's 9, 12 to 17, when a prophet speaks, Behold, uh, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. We know where our mind goes in that moment. We know that there is one coming who is, in a sense, the physical embodiment of the very temple of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the already fulfillment of God's presence among them will be the construction of the temple, the, the building of it. But there is this future component that there is one yet to come who will take into himself all of the architecture, all of the furnishing, all of the symbolism, all of the meaning, all of the power of the temple because he will be God in human flesh. And he will live and he will dwell among his people and he will proclaim to them all of the truth and the beauty and the glory and the justice and the wrath and the mercy of God in the way that he lives. And so God will keep his promise and he has kept his promise by returning his people to their land, but then also coming to dwell among them so that he will no longer appear to be the standoffish God who seems to direct the course of human events as if he's pulling levers or strings, but now will himself become like us and will experience the same kinds of joy, injustice, beauty, and ugliness, be tempted in all things as are we yet without sin, so that by entering and fully identifying with what it means to be human, Christ provides for us a way to be saved and made right with God. So how will God keep his promise? He will return to his people and he will dwell among them. The marvelous promise and fulfillment of Christ's coming remember, is on the night that he is betrayed, when Jesus, in, from John uh, 14 through 17, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, first about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then what will happen in the moments uh, you know, about to occur, he tells them, I think in John 14, that if anyone loves me, keeps my commandments, my Father and I will come and we will make our home with you. And that will be the work of the Spirit. So that in the age in which Christ is now present with us, there is no longer a need to go to a particular physical place to experience the presence of God. But it can be and will be experienced through an interaction with God, through His Word, in the fellowship with His people. So you move away from a a need for a central geographic location like the temple, the physical temple, to God now dwelling among his people. So there is this already and not yet, this present and future component uh, to this promise. And what's the result of God keeping his promise then to bless people who play by his rules? Well, very simply, when you read, uh, we'll get into these verses, that God will cause his people to experience a dramatic reversal of fortune. Look at verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be rebuilt. So they will have the strength and the resources needed to rebuild the temple. It's, this is where it's important too to, to read the Bible consistently and to read the Bible as a connected, unified whole. You want to know what's also happening at the same time Zechariah is prophesying? Read Haggai, because Haggai and Zechariah live at the same time. They are in Jerusalem. They each have a ministry. Haggai lays out for the people 
The things that have gone wrong for them are because they have ignored building the temple of the Lord. Zechariah presents the positive side of that. So when we think in terms of how we can build or construct a fellowship that's known as Maranatha Grace Church, how we can reach out to our community, where will the resources, where will the courage, where will the strength come from? It will come from the Lord who provides it. So that as we set ourselves to building what he has commissioned us to build through the proclamation of his word, through the rendering of true justice, through doing kindness and mercy to one another, not devising evil against one another, speaking truth in love, loving truth in peace, we will find that the God who has called us to this task will provide us with the very means to do it. Let your hands be strong, says the prophet. It's, a, it's an awesome task. And sometimes it can be daunting and physically and spiritually exhausting. But the strength to do this does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from simply trying harder. It comes from trusting in the one who has called us to it. We're good at trying hard. We're good at working hard. And it's good to try. It is good to work. But realize that the strength to do that and the calling to do that comes from the God who has called you into that. And so they'll have the strength to finish rebuilding the thing that he has called them to rebuild. And then very, very crudely, in some ways, in verses 10 and 11, they'll have money in their pockets. Verses 10, he says, For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah, when you read, if you go back and, and you just turn the page and read Haggai, Haggai is addressing the people. He's saying, you know, you've, had, you, you've planted and you haven't reaped. You, have, you, you may have money, but you put it into purses that have holes. So it just goes who knows where. Zechariah promises a reversal of fortune so that whatever means you need or whatever reward you seek for the work that God has called you to do, God will provide it. He will also ensure that there will now be peace among the community as they unite in this project that he has called them to complete. So you have the, the strength and the ability to do it in verse 9, and you have the means to do it in verse 10. This also applies to families seeking to build on the foundation of truth in the gospel. This has to do with our relationships with one another as church members in terms of sharing what resources God has, helped, uh, has provided for us through our jobs and other sources of income. This also allows us then to reach out to those in our community because as God has blessed us, the reason why the temple is built, you understand, is that so not only that the Israelites who are there can worship, but that, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, other nations can be drawn to it to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So everything that we do, while it is important to provide for ourselves and our families, has this otherness component to it, that it is to leave for others and to share with others what God has provided for us. And so they'll have the strength to finish the, the temple, they'll have money in their pockets, plus they'll have plenty of food. In verse 12, 
For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens give their due. If you read the curses that God gives to Moses in Deuteronomy 28, there is a, a kind of curse called the futility curse, which means that things are futile. You plant, you don't get any crops. Right? You, you, you try to raise livestock and they don't produce. Here, there's a reversal of that. The land which has lain barren and desolate for years suddenly will burst forth and be fertile. Why? Because the people have responded to the command of God to do the work that he has called them to do. So there is this association, this connection that obedience leads to provision. That by doing what God has commanded, there are these blessings that follow. And again, all designed to build up the nation so that the nation can pull others into this relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they'll have their reputation restored. Verses 13 and 15. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Again, fear not and let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And again the command comes, fear not. That emphasis on not being afraid, I think it's one of the, if it's not the most numerous command given in the scriptures, it certainly is in the top five. That there is a sense in which we are afraid at times to proclaim the good news, to serve God with a, a glad and, and willing heart. And here God says, don't be afraid. Fear not. That we know, I mean, if you pay attention to headlines and things like that, in terms of the reputation of the church, it has suffered because of the sins of others. It has suffered because of the misdeeds of others. And the reputation of the gospel suffers when that happens. Here, God says, regardless of that, there will be a reversal of fortune for those for a church that sets as its goal serving me with a whole heart, whose people are dedicated and devoted to keeping my commandments, to have times of confession, to acknowledge the fact that while we are forgiven, we are still imperfect and we do sin. So that rather than covering that up, we deal with it openly and honestly and transparently, first with ourselves, with our spouses, with our friends, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That allows for a clearing of the air so that there's always grace flowing and it's never choked off because we are afraid to be transparent. We had a wonderful time at men's breakfast yesterday talking about the one another's of the gospel in a positive way of speaking the truth to one another, loving one another, forgiving one another. A church that can practice those kinds of one another's with an honesty and a humility is a church that just cannot help but attract people to it. Because for as much as our, our uh, let's say, our world, our culture is cynical about religion, they desperately want something that's authentic, real, and genuine. 
They want someone who can talk to them truthfully and deal with them truthfully and not put on a show. Of all people on earth, we who follow Christ are to be the most authentically transparent, vulnerable, humble people. We have no cause to be self-righteous because in view of our sin, as the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all enter the kingdom of heaven one way and one way only by acknowledging the horror and depravity of our sin and the misery it causes, then acknowledging that the only cure for that misery and horror is the cross of Christ, and then receiving the gift of faith to serve him. That kind of authenticity, that kind of humility, that kind of honesty, what do you think people were drawn to Jesus? Never a man spoke as this man. This man speaks with authority, not like the teachers of the law. We hear something, we see something in this man. And the world is desperately in need of people who can speak with that kind of authenticity, that kind of vulnerability, that kind of honesty and transparency. To be salt and light. And then their, fe- their fasting will be transformed into feasting. I'll have more about this more to say about this later. In verse 19a, the, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And notice too how many times that phrase, Thus says the Lord of hosts, is repeated. It's there for emphasis. That this is not Zechariah saying, with some sort of cheerleading kind of thing, like, rah, rah, God's going to do this. But this is God himself speaking through the prophet. Right? The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast. They had all of these fasts going on. And these fasts that were designed to be opportunities to rejoice in God's presence and blessing became seasons of mourning and degradation and and self-pity. And God says, I'm going to transform them from those kinds of things, from times of mourning into times of celebration. And I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. And then lastly, they will be a center of God's missional activity. The way that the chapter ends is with this description of the nations being drawn to seek God's favor. That you'll have ten Gentiles from different nations grabbing on to to one Jew saying, let's go with you because we know God is with you. That God will cause this to happen. That he will bring this about. Now, in light of all of this, what does God expect from his people? He said it in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 7. He repeats it again in verses 16, 17, and in the last half of 19. He says, these are the things that you shall do. So the pattern is, the way God works, He gives everything we need to complete whatever task He calls us to complete. He rescues us, He saves us, He delivers us. Then He tells us what to do. Then he tells us how to live. That's what happens here. So in light of all of these blessings, in light of all of this goodness, in light of all of this mercy and loving kindness, God says, here's what I want you to do. Speak the truth to one another. There is that word again, one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for these things I hate. Now, 
I will admit I am not the best logician in the world. Logic was not my forte in college. But I think we're fairly safe in assuming that if God is saying, speak truth to one another, they weren't. When he says, render true judgments, they weren't. That he, when he says, do not devise evil against one another, they were. And that they were making these false oaths, they were. God says, if I have given you everything you need to follow me, if I have given you everything that you need to live as a, an open, transparent, humble, God-fearing, God-loving community, these things are to come as natural to you as breathing. That is, speaking the truth, rendering justice, judgments that make for peace, devising ways to promote and to stimulate one another to good deeds and love, and simply letting our yes be yes and our no be no, with no need to go through this elaborate demonstration. Some, I, I, was, I remember as a kid growing up, and uh, my brother and I would watch endless, they probably are now, endless reruns of the old Honeymooners program, which was back in the 50s. And there was a character named Ed Norton, and he worked in the sewer. And whenever Ed Norton was asked to do the most simple task, signing his name on a, on a contract, he would just, he would take the pen. And he, he, he shuffled the paper. And then, you know, Ralph would say, just sign the paper. We do the same thing, right? We try to, to reach for the, the eloquence, the, the flowery language, the, the over-demonstration of love. And all Jesus says is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So these commands that are given are interesting. But here's the thing. That even after God brings Israel back, they still didn't follow his rules. They kept their sad fasts. They failed to be kind to one another. They failed to love truth and peace. God had commanded Israel to be holy as he is holy. He gave them every reason to be devoted to him as he is to them. And they failed every single now, how do we know this? We know this because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. If Israel had kept all of these commandments, Christ would not have needed to come. Because we cannot speak the truth to one another but Jesus can. We cannot render judgments that are true and make for peace, but Jesus can. Where we find it easy to devise evil in our hearts against one another, Jesus teaches us to forgive our enemies, to love our enemies, and to pray for our enemies. Where we seek to make a show of our devotion to God with false oaths, Jesus says, make no oath at all, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, he says, is, comes from the evil one. 
We cannot love truth and peace, but Jesus can, and Jesus did. He did so that we can. He gives us this embodiment of what it means to do the things that God has said. We, we know this, the chapter of Philippians 2, where Paul tells the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Did you get that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the result of that is that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mentioned I'd circle back to use a popular phrase, to verse 19. The fasts. These fasts that were instituted as a way of remembering sorrowful events and how in the remembering of sorrowful events there is great sorrow and mourning. Of all the reversals that God promises, that having to do with these fast days, turning them into feast days, to me, that strikes me as a particular note of interest, particularly as we come to the communion table. We will eat this bread and we will drink this cup, as the apostle tells us, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's a, that is both a tragic but also joyous event. We eat this meal remembering what Jesus did because the reason why Jesus died is because our sin made it necessary for him to die as our substitute. But don't you understand that there is a day coming when he will play the final disc and when the board appears to be all dark and darkening, the light of the world will play that disc and turn the whole thing to light. There's a scene at the end of the Bible that talks about this and describes this with such beauty and majesty that it should make us long for that day and pray for it. The beloved disciple has the revelation given to him in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. This is after Jesus appears with the crowns on his head and a sword of truth from his mouth, a tattoo in his thigh saying, the faithful one. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lord has come, and his bride, his bride, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Why is there a reversal of fortune? So that we and all those to whom God has sent us with his word can be invited to this supper in anticipation of a greater supper, a greater feast yet to come, where he will transform our sorrow into gladness, our tears into shouts of praise, when we see fully and participate finally in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now uh, to receive the bread and the cup, as your Spirit has been preparing our hearts for this moment, help us, Father, with the eyes of faith, see beyond this day to that time, to that moment as John has described for us. When we will be clothed fully and finally in fine linen, bright and clean, all sin, all sin and every vestige of it, all sorrow and mourning having been chased away, every tear wiped away, our eyes now bright, no longer with sadness, but bright with hope and the glorious eternal day that is the Lamb of God, the joy of God the Father in the presence of your Spirit. Father, as we celebrate this meal, fill our hearts with that hope, with that assurance, that glorious destiny. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.